Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. Amen. Well, the Australian poet Les Murray describes poetry uh, with this beautiful word. Uh, He uses the word whole speak, whole speak. Uh, Murray contrasts this to narrow speak, which he says dominates so much of our lives uh, that orbits and circulates around pragmatics. And I confess, as I was thinking about his words this week, that often even in a space of worship like this, of word and table, of of, of sacrament and mystery, narrow speak can so often dominate this space. Uh, In his opening introduction to a new anthology on poetry, Mark Burroughs states that against narrow speak, poetry initiates us into mystery. I love that. It initiates us into mystery. Poems, in his words, are a living witness to the deeper and more enduring truths that we only reach through whole speak. Now, begin with this idea this morning, because as we continue to sit with this epistle, the letter to the Hebrews, I confess it is always tempting to rush immediately to narrow speak. What does this mean? And based off of what this means, what do we then do with it? Those reflections are by no means inferior to any others, but there is a divine beauty and mystery and a divine hope meant for us in this letter that can oftentimes be rushed over in our attempt to explain the differences between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood and what that means. Again, incredibly important, but I think there's a different invitation for us, the friends of God this morning. And it's this, it's to consent to the invitation into mystery, to acquiesce to God, the living witness of the deeper and more enduring truths. It's an invitation to speak whole speak together this morning. And as would be fitting, I want to start our time this morning with a poem. Um, I've been reading this poem this week. It's an old Anglo-Saxon poem that some of you may know of um, called The Dream of the Rood, R-O-O-D. You could go Google it, listen to it both in um, Old English as well as people who are much more beautiful at reading poetry than me. Uh, But it's a poem that is rather long. It tells the story of the crucifixion from the point of the cross, which appears to the narrator in a dream. And there's a moment early on that the tree that is not yet a cross begins to tell its story with these lines. Struck off from my stem, strong foes seized me, set me up for a spectacle Foes aplenty fastened me. The unknown author in these lines means for us, the reader, to find solidarity with a tree just felled. Like the tree, the early stories of God tell us that we have been struck off from the stem that is God. Strong foes aplenty have taken hold of us. We find ourselves in a state of woundedness, of bondage, of brokenness, and of suffering all of which we both experience and also participate in. And so the poem continues. Far off then I saw the king of all mankind coming in great haste with courage keen. 
The unknown poet captures here the descent of the human God, Jesus, the word made flesh, the incarnation. There is intended to be a moment of relief in these lines for both the tree and for the reader. The rescue is in fact on its way. And there's also this air of hope that drenches these lines, that everything that is wrong will be immediately be made right. Surely this one, this king who is coming will in an instant heal, in an instant return us, limb to stem, trunk to stump. Everything wrong will be made right. And let's be honest, is this not the God we want? the God I want. If I can for a moment invite us to just sort of step to the side for a moment of honesty, I can't tell you how often I am frustrated by the slowness of God. God's slowness makes for great poetry, for good song, for good stories, but oh my goodness, in a moment of need, I want God to be anything other than slow. I want him to be the king riding over the horizon keen to instantly, almost magically make everything right. And more than that, how often has this not been the God we've been offered? Even from pulpits such as these. And so with the tree, we watch as the story of God unfolds daily, weekly, year after year. The king comes, but rather than magically set it all right, Listen to the next few lines of the poem. He ascended on the high gallows, brave in the sight of many when he wanted to ransom mankind. I trembled when he embraced me, but I dared not bow to the ground or fall to the earth's corners. I had to stand fast. I was reared as a cross I raised up the mighty king, the Lord of heaven. I dared not lie down. They drove dark nails through me, the scars still visible, open wounds of hate. I dared not harm any of them. They mocked us both together. I was drenched with blood flowing from the man's side after he sent forth his spirit. In these lines, the cross learns what we know, that the coming of God in Jesus, that with this coming, God brings life, and God brings life through death. The Son of God takes our nature to himself. Out of love, he allows himself and our fallen nature to drag him down. And because he shares our nature, he is able to fall with us into death. His wounds become our wounds, our wounds become his. Christ descends to the wilderness that is the human condition. He goes all the way to the very foundations and depths of our need and there at that moment, he does not strike us. He does not perpetuate violence against us, but rather he rescues us. He takes hold of us. He embraces our human nature. And because he is God, he fills death with his very presence so that the grave becomes a source of life. 
to take a hard left, for better or worse, every single political cycle, which living in Virginia feels like it is annually. There's always this back and forth of candidates attempting to convince you that they are just like us. They know what it is to walk in our skin, to sit in our streets. There are media blitzes, photo op stage. There are conversations. There are moments when you're like, are you fooling anyone? But with Jesus, there is no media scheme. There is no messaging strategy to try and convince us. The opening movement in our epistle reading this morning holds this theme in its bones. In fulfilling the ancient promises of God, Christ was and remains one of us. A true human being who, in the words of N.T. Wright, still remembers what it was like to be weak, to get sick, to be tempted over and over from every angle. When God become flesh represents us before the Father, he isn't looking down on us from a great height and being patronizing about those poor creatures down there who can't really do much for themselves, he can truly sympathize. He has been here. He knows exactly what it is like. And from this ascended place, not a place of spiritual rest, it is a place of work. Christ, as our high priest, continues to implement the work he had accomplished on earth. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 8. What are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son, but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything? Who will bring charges against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who then? will separate us from the love of God in Christ. And he goes on, in case anyone goes, I, I think I know what. He goes, will hardship, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? No, none of these things will separate us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I think there's an invitation in this moment for me and for you to look upon God as God actually is. To lay aside what we may desire for God to be like or what God or what we desire for God not to be like, but to give our yes and our amen to the God that was and is and will always be revealed in Christ. And again, I doubt I am the only one here who attempts in both subtle and maybe not so subtle moments to wrestle away from the potter, not only the clay, but also the water the potter's wheel and the kiln and the sponge and the trimming tool. And that's all I know of pottery based off of watching the great pottery showdown, <laughs> which is a great show. But the point remains, we attempt to wrestle those things from God as a way of avoiding reality. That is to say, to avoid the givenness and the actuality of our lives and the lives of those who I love and care for. Lives that on this side of new creation, let's be honest, are an equal measure of pain and pleasure, of cruelty and creativity, of brutality and beauty. Lives full of both moments of consolation and moments of desolation. 
And listen, I, I'll be the first to admit, I am chief among those who want to avoid a God who does not work against the grain of that reality, but works with it. I want to avoid a God who comes to die, a God who waits three days for resurrection. And when this is not the God the old stories and poems tell of, I return to newer gods. Gods like cynicism and rage and addictions and self-righteousness and avoidance and probably what is the Zeus of them all, numbing. The God of numbing with a flash of thunder and lightning promising instant results, which let's be clear, he delivers. An instant relief to my pain and my struggle and my heartache. But what is the trade-off? What is the sacrifice, the payment that is requested in that temple? As we know, the numbing walls we built in its honor do not discriminate. And so they keep out not only the things we wish to avoid, they also keep out any truth, goodness, and beauty. Because we don't get to selectively numb. Everything must be kept out or nothing at all. That is not the bargain we make with this God. And over against this, the writer of Hebrews gives us not a God amongst many, not one option that will work now, but not then, nor are we given, but what we are given is again and again and again, we are given the God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, revealed in Christ, present here and now, not as one outside of our condition, but as the one who, although was a son, learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, became a source of eternal salvation for all who would obey him. That is something altogether different than what creation anticipated, than even what the angels saw coming. Something altogether outside our expectations and systems for bringing God's restoration to the world. And there's a reason why it comes so unexpectedly, because God knows what we so often forget, that our bondage, our brokenness, our suffering... All those things have made their way far too deep into the groundwater of our lives to simply be suddenly, almost by magic, instantly removed. Which is why the Christian gospel refuses quick fixes and is resistant to instant results. And not only that, but it would seem that God himself is resistant to quick fixes and instant results. Our God is differentiated enough from our sense of timing that is, on one hand, incredibly frustrating. But on the other hand, is an act of grace. Especially in moments of sober clarity when there is a glimpse into my own inner complexity and the complexity of those around me. In those moments when we with St. Paul can say, I don't understand what I do because I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. In that moment, a God who moves slow. A God who moves slow, who takes three days for resurrection is good news, is consoling news. Like James and John in the gospel reading, it's actually good news when God and God's ways are divergent from our own strategies for navigating this world. 
So then, the good news is that in Christ, what is revealed is a God who, in order to set all things right, enters into and must enter into those very things. And not only enter into them, but to take them up to himself, to take them up into himself, to bear them for us, to be made a curse, to be obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Because there is no freedom, there is no healing, there is no restoration without God taking them on. And in taking them on, God enters into our very moment of pain and joy and patience and wisdom because God knows what I forget, that all these things are birth pangs of a new creation. Birth pangs that place us at the foot of the cross that in the resurrection and ascension is revealed to be not the place where God dies, but the cruciform throne where all our contrary experiences in this life intersect in the one seated there, the one that St. Mark describes as the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is what John the Beloved sees and writes in his revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling place is with mankind. And he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer. Because the previous things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, behold, I make all things new. This, friends, is the statement made not at some point in the future, but this, as he gives up his final breath and says, it is finished. What John and the church has always believed was that in that moment, in that giving up of spirit as blood dripped down the cross, at that moment, Christ, the one, seated on his throne, which was a cross, said, behold, I make all things new. In this image of Jesus, we have the image of our high priest, a king, a prophet, our Messiah, seated on the throne. And in this, we are given a word of hope for the world. Because let's be clear, it is a word of hope that is not just for us, but it is for the cosmos. It is not a word of hope that we keep close to our chest. It is a word for the world here and now. You and I are invited to bear witness to this one. This is the cruciform life we are invited into with our amen. And yes, let's name reality as it is. This is a co this cooperating and cruciform friendship with God for the sake of the world. Uh, in the words of Father John Baer, I heard this past week, is a combination of opposites. And let's call a spade a spade. There is no age of the church that we can point to as a golden age. Every age of the church has been filled with mess, immense pain, even immense wrongdoing. It is why God says that any criticism he has of the world begins in his own house. Why? 
In the words of Gregory of Nyssa, they discerned the beauty of the bridegroom by the agency of the bride. What Gregory's getting at is this thing we call the church that is, has always been, and will always be messy. Is the only place God has given himself to bear witness to the world of the story he has and is and will write in the very fabric of reality. The messiness of this place is the messiness he has chosen to do that. And if there's anything that that should give us, it should give us a spirit of humility and of love and of hope. Because let's be clear, the other gods of cynicism, rage, and addiction, of self-righteousness, of avoidance and numbing call for success and perfectionism. But the God of God calls for faithfulness and hope. The other gods call for quick fixes and even quicker results beginning with ourselves. But the God of gods, let me be the first to bear witness to his patient work. Let me be the first to bear witness that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And that one in whom you live and move and have your being is the one whom having begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let me close with a few of the closing lines of the poem that we began with. Now you might hear, my dear hero, that I have endured the work of evildoers, harsh sorrows. Now the time will come that far and wide they will honor me. Men and women over the earth and all this glorious creation and pray to this sign. On me, the son of God suffered for a time and so Glorious now I rise up under the heavens and am able to heal each of those who is in awe of me. Once I was made into the worst of torments, most hateful to all people, before I opened the true way of life for speech bearers. Listen, the king of glory Guardian of heaven's kingdom honored me over all the trees of the forest. Just as he has also almighty God honored his mother Mary herself above all womankind for the sake of all women and men. The son was successful in that journey. Mighty and victorious when he came with a multitude a great host of souls into God's kingdom. The one ruler, ruler almighty, the angels rejoicing and all the saints already in heaven dwelling in glory when almighty God, their ruler, returned to his rightful home. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.